Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer, as I'm sure many of you will be delighted to hear he's back after the tragic sickness and or drug abuse that led to a missing the last episode. Michael, it's good to have you back. Well, it's good to be back, Gary. I'm, I'm struggling on. I'm, listen, I, I think the word hero is overused, but you know, if that's what people want to say, well, I'm not going to stop them. Has anyone indicated that's what they want to say? Well, no, but I'm just saying if they want to, that's okay. But they, no one has looked like they wanted to say that. Well, I notice you haven't said so yet, so Gary, but I'll leave that alone and we'll come back to that another time. Michael, I have not called you a hero, but I've given you a far more valuable description. Casual acquaintance. <laughs> Member of my wider social circle. People I acknowledge the humanity and moral worth of. Wow. I know, the, the podcast without you went fine. I got to talk about nuclear power and war crimes and, you know, the classics, what people... And then, Michael, I give people what I think they really want, a 20-minute discussion of the nature of science and knowledge. Who wouldn't want that on a Sunday? Yeah, the sort of thing where if you were there, you would look at me and say, that's not what anyone wants to hear, Gary. No one needs that. Well, the thing is, you know, they might need it, but they certainly don't want it. What's in the public interest is not what the public is interested in. True. In, in the past, in the, pu- in, the, in, in the present, and it will be in the future. Actually, before we go on to like Afghanistan and the war and the war crimes and the vaccines and the you know, uh, deliberately keeping vaccines out of the hands of poorer countries and the death and all of that stuff. On an effort, Michael, to, to widen our listenership base, I found a perfect story. And also, one of the only times I've ever read an article in the Irish Examiner and agreed with it. Oh, I'm slightly shocked and slightly worried now. So this isn't about war crimes. It's not about energy. There's there's no political scandals. What this is, Michael, is how to make the perfect mashed potato and the common mistakes to avoid. This is an article in the Irish Examiner. And it's actually pretty good. There is an article in the ex- Irish Examiner telling Irish people how to mash potatoes. I mean, you, you say it like that, as if that's a ridiculous thing for a newspaper to print. But I am of the opinion that telling people how to do basic things is actually really valuable because an amazing amount of people do basic things incredibly poorly. And they assume that's the only way to do it because it's so basic. I'm not disputing that that may have some truth to it, but Gary, I'm just wondering whether a national daily newspaper is the place where they need to do that. Uh, I would have thought, like, all in the cooking, very fine cookery book used for home economics for many years in Ireland, might have been the place, or Darina Allen, perhaps. Only people who are interested in cooking read those, or is this a way to go to the people where they are? In the pages of the Irish Examiner. Well, okay, so tell me, tell me, Gary, what is the right way, according to the Irish Examiner, to mash a potato? And more, I'm more interested in, what are the common mistakes that people are making? No. No. Like Jeremy Paxman, that time they made him do the light news and talk about weather. Just no. Okay. I'll put a link to it at the bottom of this, and you can look at it if you want. However, in an attempt to actually improve the lives of listeners to this show before we get to the actual politics, and this is something that the Irish Examiner do not tell you, what you want to do is you want to go into Amazon, or whatever local retailer you have, and simply buy a thing called a ricer, or ICE, or... It's about a tenner, and all it does is it breaks up potatoes into little granules, like rice... And you will get beautiful, fluffy, delicious potatoes, which you then mix butter and salt. And they're fantastic. They're perfect. They're, as they would call, restaurant quality. And you're not recommended to use one in this recipe. So, yeah, you can go to a load of effort. But fuck it, just spend a tenner. And, you know, particularly if you're doing a lot of this, you're just going to get a better result. And by like that, Michael, I have now improved people's lives in a way that you haven't. Well, I would say that I'm sceptical of the necessity to use a ricer. I think that if you use an old-fashioned matter which would involve this is important a steel side on both sides of the masher and the masher itself should also be metal not plastic so you have a very you have a strong masher that you can vigorously strongly mash with that will do the job but the most important thing is not whether or not you use a rice or a masher you have to use a good potato and i would say remember to use Something like, say, a curse pink, something with a high dry matter quality. And after that, the only really important thing is to keep adding butter until the whole thing goes yellow. I mean, you could take Michael's advice there and, and use a masher like that if perhaps you're waiting for a telegram and you have several hours <laughs> free in the evening before the horses get to you. Or like a modern person, you can just buy the ricer and get the result immediately. It's good for families, Michael. 
It's progressive in that if you have a lot of children, you can use it quickly and it involves, you know, the entire family and women into it and all of that shit. It's just the modern way of doing it. This might be the most wholesome conversation we've ever had. I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to get into an row with you about whether the use of eraser. I'm just not. I'm, I'm trying to make up for all of my jokes about working child slaves to death in the podcast a couple, like a week ago. Right. People did not like that. You think you know people, Gary, and then you have you make a few, you know, fairly simple off the cuff remarks about work, working child slaves to death, and they get all upset. It's almost like they're invested in the lives of their children. You don't work your own children to death. You no. What you do is you you give money to a company, who somewhere far away pays for children of other people to be worked to death, and you're morally in the clear. You're morally in the clear, are you? Absolutely, Michael. Because they're far away. They're far away, and many of them have different skin colours to you. Gary, can I just stop you there? Because I, I have a feeling that we're about to get into a conversation which could read like an article by Oswald Spengler. My favourite form of empathy is I think I was introduced to once by a psychologist who was explaining to me why empathy wasn't always such a wonderful thing by itself. And, he said, and the notion of... He said that people always say that psychopaths don't have empathy, but they do have empathy. But they have a form of empathy which is known as sniper's empathy, which is basically the idea that one of the things a sniper, a really good sniper needs to do is a capacity to have a sense of where the tar- what the target is going to do next. So in a sense, you have to be able to empathise with the person that you have in your sights, or you want to get in your sights, to say whether he's going to go left or right, is he going to go up or down or jump or run? Because... and using that sense of understanding of where where that person is or what he's going to do, you can then guide your shot. Now, it's it's a kind of a, it's slightly, I would say, cold form of empathy, but this is apparently the kind of empathy he told me that you associate with psychopaths. They do actually have empathy, but it's just not the kind of empathy we like to think about. I just like the name of sniper's empathy. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes called cognitive empathy. It's the ability to put yourself in someone's place. But yes, it is a highly ranked skill in uh, various merchants of death. So we were go- we were going to go Afghanistan first and then the vaccine thing. But as we're already talking about why the death of children is moral if it's far away, let's talk about the vaccines first. Yeah, let's let's not be controversial. So, Gary, the, the West, as we are, pl- we've been here, is getting ready, getting... It's uh, self boost ready for the third round of the booster shot. Um, the lots of countries, the Brits were the first, I think. Well, the first we heard about have been buying up large supplies of vaccines, even though they have they've more than enough already f- to finish off their second round of vaccinations. And this is because there is an anticipation that. For a number of reasons. First of all, we don't know for certain how long the current vaccines will provide effective protection against uh, the coronavirus. And secondly, um, with the advent of new variants with higher levels of infectivity, we don't know if it may be necessary to tweak the current vaccines and to produce a new vaccine, which is much more effective. We hear, I don't know if you've heard this, maybe I'm wrong, but the Novavax now moving towards uh, its approval in Europe and the United States and is a traditional vaccine, it's not an MRA, um, has very high effectiveness against all of the known variants so far they think will be good against most variants. It has been bought in large numbers by the UK and other people, but others are looking at that Pfizer and Moderna are have been working for quite some time now on tweaking their vaccines to meet the now your position Gary is that if that we should at least ask the question whether or not that is the direction we should be going is that so let's work on a couple of assumptions here Michael okay that the vaccines are useful for preventing death yes whether that is one shot two shot booster shots any level of vaccination is a positive thing when looking at the death rate. Yes. We have already vaccinated nearly everyone above 18 who wants to get vaccinated. Not everyone, but the majority of people. There are always going to be people who, for various reasons, aren't able to get vaccinated, but the majority of people are vaccinated. Yes. I would like to see the relative value add of the booster shot, not on transmission, but on hospitalizations and deaths. I'd like that to be compared against this. 
there is a limited supply of vaccines in the world. The WHO is, it's being said that they've asked companies not or countries not to have booster shots yet on the basis that the third world has not been able to, in large numbers, actually acquire vaccines. Yes. It would probably be more accurate to say they have begged the world not to do this. Okay. For that reason. I would just be very curious how much benefit booster shots are to this country versus how much benefit those vaccines, if, let's say, used in somewhere like South Africa, would be to the rates of death and hospitalization there. And I'm not one of, you know, those... Soft-hearted liberal types, Michael. But I would suspect, I haven't seen the numbers, but I would suspect that you would be looking at an equation in which a single Irish death or hospitalization would be hundreds, if not more, on the other side. And I'm just not sure we've considered that calculation. So my concern here is not that we're doing it, but I think we're doing it without actually trying to look at this and go, Is this a price we want to pay? And is this something we're comfortable with? Now, I don't really care if the answer when we get to the end of it is fuck them. But I just think we as a nation should be aware of the consequences of our actions. There may, Gary, be an argument from self-interest to forego for the time being the booster shot and go into a large-scale supply of third world countries. That argument being that from what we know is that Okay, we know that one of the things that we're all terribly, terribly concerned about now is the dreaded variant. We've gone through the Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. We're up to Lambda. There's a Lambda variant out there somewhere. Now, my understanding as a lay person and very much a lay person here, but is that the likelihood of a variant or variants emerging is far higher when you have a large reservoir of unprotected people open to infection and in that group where you have virus moving from host to host to host that the likelihood of a mutation occurring is far greater than if you have it occurring in a where infection is happening in a much more limited way because of vaccine prevention now one of the questions is people see say it are not even questions, but we hear made a statements made is a variant can could develop which could escape vaccines completely. Now we're told that so far that that is unlikely, but that it is possible. And the and the more time you have large reservoirs of unprotected people, where infections are moving from host to host the likelihood or the possibility of a, a, a mutant a mutation emerging which either escapes vaccine completely or escapes vaccine to the degree that it does no it no longer confers a substantial degree of protection means that it is act, it could actually be in our interest while we're dealing with we're dealing with variants where we still have very substantial protection against serious illness hospitalization or death to actually go out and start to limit the that reservoir available to to the to the virus to create new and scarier and more horrible vaccines or uh, viruses so i would argue does that that there may actually be a self an argument from self-interest here as well i don't know enough about this area to actually say anything conclusive on it lots of that would seem to intuitively make sense I have heard other people saying that there is an issue if you have vaccines that can uh, stop some of the more serious side effects, but allow transmission and that they can impact on uh, uh, viral evolutionary pathways. Yeah, that's been, there's been a big debate about that. Uh, again, speaking very much to layman, it's, uh, I have heard, what appear to be more qualified, more eminent people in the area of vaccines and virology say that this is a misunderstood fear, that in so, that the idea is that in some sense that uh, creating vaccines that are not 100% effective would actually lead potentially to an, ev- to an, evolution, an evolutionary effect which would encourage the, the development of, of more virulent, more dangerous viruses but that historically this isn't actually the way the thing works at all. But I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying 
to the, the I'm repeating what I've been told to the extent that I understood it, and that may not even be terribly good. There is another just an addendum here as a as a point of information, as we used to say in the debates. I was talking to two uh, people in Africa in the last two days. Nothing to do with this, but in the general conversation, we're talking about the the nature of the pandemic, and there were two different countries, but they were saying that where they were, that actually it hadn't been a big issue so far. There had been some deaths, and while obviously those deaths individually to those, to the people, uh, those people's families and the people that cared about them, these were tragedies, but it, it hadn't been anything like as big a deal as it had been up to now, say, in Europe or North America or even or in South America. But they did say that they weren't sure that even if there was a large-scale push to get vaccinations going, particularly in Africa, with a large number of vaccines available, they would necessarily meet with large-scale popularity because they said the the all remember all the hoo ha about AstraZeneca, or whether AstraZeneca was safe or it wasn't safe, and different countries saying, okay, we're going, to, we're not going to give it for now. We're going to wait and have our own assessments, or we're not going to give it to this age group or to that core of the population. That has really affected the perception in Africa of of how safe AstraZeneca. And remember, AstraZeneca has been from the beginning been sort of slated as the the global vaccine this was going to be the vaccine that was going to go global that it was the one that was being produced by the world's largest vaccine plant in india and it was going to be produced in other pharma outlets across the developing world but that 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 specifically astrazeneca and then as a consequence of trust leaking away that the perception of the vaccines generally had been really quite badly damaged in Africa. And they weren't sure that you were going to see, you know, masses, queues of queues and queues of people lining up to be vaccinated anyway. No, and I, I think an important point there is there's vaccine hesitancy amongst the public, which the European rollout of AstraZeneca absolutely played a part in. Um, I, know, I remember at the time... Financial Times, when some of the AstraZeneca issues were being kicked around Europe, was pointing out that this risked undermining uh, the vaccine rollout in Africa and in other countries. And then when, ultimately, the AstraZeneca vaccine was refused by several African countries. They just did not get involved with it at all. In Europe, there are very low levels of vaccine hesitancy, and they've been falling. Gary, can I just interrupt there very quickly because say something that I was contacted by a listener who about our use of the phrase vaccine hesitancy. I mean, that's what it's called in the literature, but is there a, what, what's the issue with it? The way that we were talking about, I don't know precisely, but he wanted to make the point that there are people out there who are not, as it were, hesitant about the vaccine, but rather have made a decision as free citizens of the Republic, on the basis of their own understandings and their own moral compass, not to be vaccinated. And that we should recognise that this is what from their, their, I think their sense is that there's a, a kind of a, I don't know, a moral boulder that is being rolled over the people now, and that anybody who decides not to be vaccinated is in some sense a bad actor within society and that we are more and more looking like we're going to go to a place where people, those people who make that choice are going to be effectively punished for making that choice and that that's something that we should reflect on. That Historically, we have never forced people uh, who are capable of making their own choices to take any kind of medicine. In the case, there are cases where parents have denied medicines or, or or surgical interventions to children, where the state has intervened and said that their parents are not acting in the best interest of the children, and the children are not in the position to make uh, an informed decision. So the state has a role to protect them. But when you're talking about adults, uh, adult citizens who are making these decisions, that this is something which they are allowed to do, and it's not it, it's not the it should not be the role of the state to punish them for doing that. Now, I think that there's a there's a debate there that people could have 
but I I think he wanted that we should make that point that uh, it's sometimes people are not simply hesitant they're just they have made their minds up and that for whatever reasons they are not going to take this vaccine and that they should not be made to be somehow uh, outcasts or pariahs because of it. No, I, I see his point and I can see where it would come across like that. It's a bit of an awkward linguistic one though. Yeah, yeah. Because no polling I see, I've seen has looked at that nor attempted to differentiate it at all so any data that i quote or anything i quote in the literature is going to say vaccine hesitancy and i don't know how you would split that i mean on a personal level i don't mean to cast any moral position on this i don't terribly care if people choose to get vaccinated or not i do then think that if that has a health consequence on any side of it you you take that as well now it's worth pointing out there are increasingly num- there are increasing numbers of people who do feel that the refusal for adults, not so much children, but for adults to be vaccinated, is a, is a moral choice, which has consequences, and that I think I I I'm not, I I'm not I'm not sure about it. This when we believed that there was a point at which we were going to meet the magic number of herd immunity, then that maybe had more sense. I'm, I'm not sure now if that does. We seem to be moving away from the idea that there's ever going to be herd immunity to this virus. So in that kind of scenario, if you have a small number of people, not people who can't take the vaccine, but have decided for their own reasons not to take the vaccine, I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, if that really has... in. Uh, a situation where the virus has become endemic has a significant effect on the well-being of the rest of the population. I can see where the moral argument comes from. I think it's substantially weakened by the fact that those most at risk have themselves been vaccinated. Yes. And were vaccinated first. And as we've been going on and on, the moral argument has become less pressing there. And I think it's a question of proportionality. Though that listener is correct, not, not correct to say it's never been the case that medicines have been forced on people, but it is very rare. And even during very serious uh, national and global disease outbreaks, people have been very slow to do it. I mean, you have cases like the Typhoid Mary case going back a while. And for all the people might know that name, and it was, it was someone who was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid, the authorities went to great lengths to try not detain that person indefinitely. Yes. Ultimately, she just loved killing people, though. After after a ser- she, she served as maid to families, and then the families would all get typhoid, because she was an asymptomatic carrier of it. And after this happened to a number of families, and she just kept doing it, there was a kind of idea that, okay, the first one or two, you might not know you're doing it. Yes. But now this is starting to get into a sort of murder scenario. Yeah, there's a murdery feel about it, a little bit of a serial killer vibe. Yeah, you just you just keep killing people, and eventually they just put her uh, away. They are they are they are right on one thing. There is a lot of low level coercion here. Yeah, and it's things like well, you can't go into a restaurant, you can't do these things, you may not be able to fly to certain countries, things which will infringe rights to varying levels but are generally of a type where most people are going to accept them or will yeah. be motivated to get the vaccine purely because they want to do something. And yeah, there is a lot of that in this country. And it's not something we would have traditionally have accepted, but it's been a very odd year. It has. The question is going to be whether or not these things escalate. Are we going to see situations where government bodies... NGOs or even private companies say, listen, if you want to come into the office, if you want to work with us, if you want to go into these situations, then we are going to look for a vaccine cert. My understanding is that that's very difficult to do at the minute due to the existing laws. Yeah. So they would need to change as well. What I would be interested to see is what else will they, what else will they expand this to? Or will they expand it to anything? Is this one going to be a unique case? Or, when it's accepted that you can do these things, is the government going to find some other area where this needs to be the case as well? Mm. And that's always the worry, isn't it? I mean, we, I know it's not a concern I share, but I know that some people do feel that the use of the vaccine passport may indeed 
be simply the beginning of something else. Well, I would say this now that we've started talking about booster shots. Surely that devalues the idea of a vaccine passport. Well, yes, it does. On the face of it, it does seem to make it a little bit less coherent. And if we're talking about what can be done about this, well, then it not be a better idea to look into like the widespread use of antigen testing. Yeah, I mean, we one of the weird things is we are now in the vanguard of vaccinations as a proportion of the population. Yeah, we really turned that around. We really have. We, we're well ahead of places like England, Scotland, Denmark, lots of other countries in Europe. And yet they have been more open than us for longer. They are continuing down the road of discarding. For example, mask wearing is now starting to, to disappear in countries uh, across Europe. Uh, rules about concerts, large-scale events, music events, this kind of thing. These these are being opened up again. And yet we're also looking like, at least a couple of days ago, we were on a trajectory that we were going to go back up to the top of Europe for our, our case numbers. And I know that we have said before that we, at this point, we shouldn't be looking so much at case numbers, but as hospitalizations, ICUs and deaths. But even... But the numbers of hospitalizations have been going up, not dramatically, and certainly, thankfully, mortality rates are nowhere near where they were at a similar similar levels of cases some time ago. But still, the increase. And yeah, what are we what are we not doing that other countries are doing to control these things? And one of the things we seem to be not doing, in comparison, say for example, Denmark. And it may turn out that when we look at it, that actually that wasn't a big issue for Denmark. But it looks like at the moment the Danes are using aggressively in widespread fashion. They're using antigen testing, rapid antigen testing, as a as a central tool. We are still stuck. Geez, Gary, how long are we having this conversation about about antigen <laughs> testing? Really? It uh, I'd say about a year at this point. I think just an important point to make, if if people aren't aware of this, at the current trajectory of cases. And looking at the Irish government's response to this historically, it seems pretty inevitable that we're going back into lockdown at some point. And it also seems to be the only thing the Irish government knows how to do. And I'm kind of amazed that they haven't brought in lockdown already again. Because when you look at the number of cases growing, they've gone up massively. And that has, over the last year and a half, been all the government needed to come down. We're now looking at... What, we're only a, what, a fortnight away from the schools going back. We're looking at weather closing in and winter's coming. The time when you'd normally expect that there would be an incre- another out peak or spike in cases anyway. And at the moment, we have not heard, for example, we have not heard the government say, we are not going back. Several countries across Europe have made the statement, we are not going back into lockdown. Whatever happens in the future, we will have to manage it in a different way. That is not the position, as I understand it, in this country. We have heard no no kind of solid guarantee saying that we are not going backwards. So it does look like the, uh, right now the only other, the only tool that this, the government sees in it, that it has in its, in its arsenal is the use of the lockdown. And... I think that that's where we are going to end up. Sooner or later, we will be back in lockdown. And why not try the antigen testing? If it doesn't work, if it isn't effective, well, then we'll find that out. But for God's sake, it seems to be useful in other countries. It seems to be working. Since the 1st of May, because I was just doing this earlier today because, you know, I like stats. Yeah. Since the 1st of May, there have been 76,000 751 COVID cases in Ireland. Confirmed COVID cases, I should say, because there's going to be a lot of um, asymptomatic cases that aren't going to show up in that. In that same time, 153 people have died. Yes. Now, you put that into a ratio, Michael. Mm-hmm. It's not... It is not looking as it was earlier. It is very clearly a very different situation yes 
Mostly because, well, there were those things with, you know, the old folks home and the government's orders and they may have killed quite a lot of people through ineptitude. But those people are dead and they can't die twice. So that's actually really helping us now. The uh, the hospital outbreaks seem to be happening in a different way, happening to different demographics again because of vaccination. I mean, if you do that, if you do that ratio, I mean, could, do you get... A CFR is it a CFR that we is that the word we use? Case fatality ratio. I mean, it must be much much. I mean, factors lower than it was, say, in March of last year. It's about point two percent. The point I would make here again is that you've two concerns here. One is that the government, that's the only response they've shown so far, is lockdown based on case numbers, and the other is this. The Irish Health Service doesn't have a lot of capacity. So you start getting high enough numbers amongst uh, groups that are very unlikely to get sick. Uh, Even the flu season nearly destroys the hospital system. So you get something worse than that. Country can't handle it. But is this not, in a sense, Gary, an argument in favour of the booster? You see, it depends what the impact of the booster is. Because... There will be a percentile increase, but I don't know what it is. I haven't seen much work on what it is. And even when you're looking at the actual impact of the vaccines, we have the laboratory data, we have some of the studies there, but now we're getting some of the real world information and we're seeing kind of just different results from different countries. And it's hard to figure out exactly what's causing what. Yeah. So I don't know. I I don't know what impact the booster would have. I'd be very interested in seeing what Neffet has pulled together on what impact the booster would have. But this kind of goes back to something I've been complaining about for a long, a good long time. We don't explain why we're doing things. We give like a one line, like, oh, this is what we're doing. But we never go, here is the work. Like we're not using antigen testing and here is the reason. And it's laid out. And if we're wrong, have a look at it. We just do things. So now when we're talking about the booster shots, I don't know what the relative impact of them will be. And I think the WHO does have a very good point that um, lots of countries in the world cannot compete financially against the first world. We already have a situation where Europe has vaccines that are going off and now they're stockpiling things and waiting for potential booster shots that they may not give out. So that course of action, assuming everything we assumed at the start of this conversation, is going to kill people in poorer countries. And I think that's, that's... pretty explicitly something we should understand we are doing. And on the face of it, having vaccines in stock that are going off just seems to be immoral in a fairly un- a fairly uncomplicated kind of way. I imagine long-term listeners have generally figured out my stance on these things. I don't care if we take the immoral course of action. I just want us to understand what we're doing. Yeah. If you're, If that is a trade that a democratically elected government wants to make and they want to say our citizens are more important than this amount of people in wherever. I think that's fine. What I don't like is when people try and make these decisions and not talk about them on the assumption that there's nothing wrong with it, or there is no argument that could be put forward saying, you know, are we doing the right thing? Is this morally or ethically or even just practically correct to do? Sure. It, it goes back to, again, an argument, a discussion that, as you say, oh, long-term listeners will be well used to, is the fact that all of these cases are cases of trade-offs. These are not simple binary choices. This is good, this is bad. There are going to be trade-offs. And we have to work out on balance, what is the nature of the trade-off? What will be the loss? What is the downside of making this choice? Now, if we make this choice, as you say, if we make the choice and even... Even understanding that the downside for poor countries is going to be very bad and the upside for us is going to be fairly marginal, but that's still a choice that we want to make. At least we're making it in the full explicit knowledge of what we're doing. But as it is, it's, there, there is no discussion. There is no real information. It's not, it's not a choice. We're not making any kind of explicit choice between this positive and that, and, and, and that positive. I, and I just want to... A slightly, I suppose, return to the point I'm making. One of the things that WHO has been saying, and a lot of epidemiologists are saying, is in the context of a pandemic like this, nobody is ever really safe until there is some kind of global control. You can't, you can't have a global pandemic and, as it were, build a wall, a vaccine-based wall around Europe and say, well, we're all vaccinated, we're fine. 
if it keeps raging around the rest of the world, ultimately there is a chance that it's going to break through our wall anyway. And that's something that we have to consider, even in our own, if even in the most basic self-interest. We had actually, we had, um, what's his name? Uh, Professor Andrew Pollard. So Pollard is, I think he's the head of the Oxford Vaccine Group. And what he said was that large-scale boosting in one rich country would send a signal around the world that boosters are needed everywhere. This will suck many vaccine doses out of the system and many more people will die because they never even had a chance to get a single dose. If the millions are boosted in the absence of a strong scientific case, history will remember the moment at which political leaders decided to reject their responsibility to the rest of humanity in the greatest, in the greatest crisis of our lifetimes. So pretty explicit there. This is going to kill people and maybe you should find some evidence for it. And it may be going to kill a lot of people. I mean, if that matters, not a few hundred people, not even a few thousand people, potentially millions of people may die over the next year, two years, whatever, as this pandemic continues, if they don't get access to even one vaccination. And we should make our decisions cognizant of that and if we make a decision well then that's the decision we will have to live with our with ourselves but we should make it at least in that full knowledge yeah we're very fond of not doing that though well of course it's a great way of avoiding any kind of sense of moral responsibility well i i i I didn't know it's just another version of bigger boys came along and made me do it yeah that's why i like to bring it up so often afflict the comfortable michael it's like the slave labour thing. Just like to keep reminding people of it. So that every time they turn on their iPhone, they feel that little twinge of guilt? No, 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 no. That they feel awful because they don't feel a twinge of guilt. <laughs> yeah, let's be twisted if we can. Why not? No, I just I just want it to be that no one can ever say, well, I didn't know. You're quote, well, you're basically quote, my favourite moment from one of my favourite shows, which is the, the Sopranos, when Tony's wife goes off and she meets this old-fashioned therapist, basically says, okay, leave him. Bring the children and don't take any of his money. Take nothing. Just take the children. And he's very, this is not what she wants to hear. And eventually she's crying and weeping. She says, why are you saying this to me? And he looks at her and he says in the voice of an Old Testament prophet, I am telling you this so you will never be able to say, nobody told me. And it's like a condemnation. And it's a wonderful moment. And that's basically you, is it, right now? Nobody will be able to say, nobody told me. On many topics, that is my approach. I talk about it not in the assumption anyone will change their views or even question what they're doing slightly, but rather then when it goes totally to the fucking wall and it becomes clear what's happened, you won't be able to say you didn't know about it. Not honestly. And you do like this, you have the Uyghur stuff. When I talk about some of the side effects of the hormones used on children in relation to the transgender issue and the sterilizations, that's all for when these very obviously bad things go to shit, people know. And you know, maybe at that point, Michael, there might be a moment of, oh, I may have contributed to that. Yeah, I suppose there's that element of, as uh, an old student friend of mine said, well, when this happens, at least you'll know why you're going to hell. Speaking of the impact of choices, in a beautiful segue, we have seen the impact of ch- the choices made by President Joe Biden recently on the, his management decisions regarding the uh, evacuation of the United States troops from Afghanistan. That's going well. That's not a situation where many people, bar the Taliban, have covered themselves in glory. That's not a sentence he ever really wanted to have to say, is it? Bar the Taliban. I don't think anyone can honestly look at how quickly the Taliban took back the country and how completely they seem to have done so and say they did a bad job. I mean, at worst, you can say they did a better job than they should have. Is this, well, you know, give credit where credit is due? It's a fantastic achievement to take a country of 38 million people like that. With bad roads, lots of mountains. I I have enjoyed Joe Biden. Uh, I really enjoyed his recent speech where it was basically like Afghanistan was a woman and Joe Biden had slept with her and was now just ignoring her calls, like just ghosting her. He was done. Yeah. And it was up to her to deal with whatever the consequences of that night may have been. And the consequences are not good. 
No, no video of people falling from planes. Combined with the light-hearted videos of you know, Taliban members seeing a gym for the first time. Very big, uh, very big into helicopters now, the Taliban. Yeah, Ameri- American helicopters, American Humvees. Basically, was the estimate something like they have picked up around $83 billion worth of gear left over by, left there by the Americans? That was one figure. I, I mean, it's, it's like a peculiarly precise figure to me. But whatever way you cut it, we're talking about a lot of gear. I saw that some of the equipment the Taliban had seized. And some of it is spectacular stuff. Spectacular. Really the sort of stuff you did not want them getting. But you see these and you just sort of go, why wasn't that destroyed? Whatever about getting it out of the country, disable it. Anybody that ever watched a war film, and anything, you know, stuff back to oh, Napoleon or the Crimean War or anything. When you knew your position was going to be overwhelmed and you had artillery pieces of any kind or any kind of material that you didn't want to fall into the hands of the enemy, they would say, spike the guns. First thing you do, spike the guns. Make whatever you had unusable for the enemy so you weren't giving sucker to the enemy when they got your gear. As you say, I mean, if they could have done it. and It's hard to imagine, Gary, that they couldn't have managed the American military the world's largest, most funded, most tech- technologically advanced army. I mean, the most since the greatest uh, piece of warfaring uh, gathering that we've seen since the time of Genghis Khan and before that they they couldn't have some way worked out how to fly these things on. But even if they couldn't, that they couldn't have just blown them up or destroyed them or made them unusable. How how hard could that have been? Yeah, the line from the White House is that they couldn't have done that because that would have uh, sparked a crisis of confidence in the Afghani government and that they were unaware of how quickly the Afghan military would fold. Yeah, I, I was yeah, I was wondering if, ever, if they were going to say we couldn't have done that because that would have voided the warranty. The thing there, though, Michael, is if they were unaware of how quickly the Afghan military would fold... Mm-hmm then their intel was shit. Absolute shit. Yeah. In which case, they weren't doing their job and they should have been replaced by people who were doing their job. And then they should have known. Or they did know and they just didn't bother. Now, what could also be happening here is they absolutely knew the army would fold but thought they had three months and then they had a week and a bit. But ultimately, if that is what happened, that's because they the way they did it themselves. They did this to themselves. And none of this... It should be surprising in the context of a plan, as we said the last time, where they got the thing so arseways that they they pretty well left the country before they remembered that they still had an embassy in Kabul and they hadn't got them out yet. They'd taken the soldiers out that were going to protect them and then they, oh shit, we have the embassies there. Oh, God, we better do something about that, lads. I don't know if you saw, there's a photo making the rounds and it's of a um, Chinook. The, the helicopter? Yes. Over the US Embassy in Kabul. Yes, yeah. And people have immediately linked that to Saigon. Yes. Because that's a perfectly fair comparison to make, actually, at this point. Mm-hmm. Which is not where you want to be. No. But then I was thinking of um, when the Soviets left Afghanistan. And they did not have a good time in Afghanistan. They did not. I mean, did they commit some atrocities? Absolutely. Well, somewhere between half a million and two million Afghanis killed. But how do they leave, Gary? Do they leave in a state of, oh my God, quick, grab your socks and run? No, they organised it and then they left on a schedule and they did so in a way that symbolically worked. And that was it. They were like, we're done. Everything is gone. Lock it up. Back to you guys. Obviously, people have been talking about the tens of thousands of people in the country some with visas, some without visas, who had been of material help to not just the Americans. Because remember, not just the Americans in Afghanistan. There was, I don't, God knows, I, I, maybe a dozen, maybe up to 20 different European countries were also present there to a greater or lesser degree, small from very small contingents up to really quite significant contingents. So there were thousands and thousands of people, whether they were working in commissaries or they were interpreters or guides or whatever, who are now 
in very, very, very serious danger. But Gary, you see, the last couple of days we've now seen congressmen tweet that they 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 think there may be upwards of ten thousand American citizens who have not been able, who were not able to get through the lines to get to the embassy, and have been told to wait in place, and we'll see what we can do. They they don't seem to know how many American citizens are there. I've also seen some complaining of uh, Russian interference. I haven't seen any Russian interference. Seem to be saying it's the Wagner Group and things are happening, but it seems to be totally unsubstantiated. It did seem like quite a rich thing to say, because we're asking there, Michael, about when the Soviet Union was leaving Afghanistan. Interesting thing about that. When that was happening, the United States decided they were not going to stop supplying the Mujahideen with weapons, mm-hmm. which meant the Mujahideen continued attacking Soviet facilities and people. Yes. And the Soviet Union had to go to the UN and ask the United States to please stop this. And, you know, things like, this is now a war crime. Listen, we're, we are leaving, you know? Could you just let us leave? We have negotiated. We're leaving. You keep giving weapons to people who are attacking us. You know, we're, we're trying to leave. And, you know, yeah, so the UN, war crimes, all that sort of stuff. And the Americans didn't. Um, partially, I would suspect, because they couldn't actually control the people they were giving weapons to. That's the nature of that particular beast, isn't it? And it's, there's no use complaining about it. When you give people guns, you don't. You can never predict after the first target what the second target is going to be. It's just, you pays your money, you takes your chance. There is, like, I mean, there's, there is obviously the policy debate about Afghanistan and what should have been done. And that debate has been going on so long at this point that it's largely absolutely pointless. Like, you could say that we shouldn't have got in. That's the easy answer. Then you can say, having gone in, well, we should have brought back the king because he was popular. All right, well, he fucking died in 2007, so that's off the table. Yeah, but Gary, just just yeah, just on that point, we were talking before, I know, there's an interesting point that was made by uh, a mutual friend of ours, which really wrote a paper on this some years ago, talking about, and it's, I just want to bring it up because I think it's an interesting point, it's about ideology at work and how ideology doesn't necessarily, and one of the problems may be, the United States has, has had in the last number of years when it's going into these situations. Is it? He made the point that if you looked at the State Department, the State Department was directly involved in planning, say, for the development of countries, in the, particularly in the, in the immediate period after the Second World War. And with the exception of Japan, which was not a decision made by the State Department, but was made at a much higher level, that the emperor would stay. They went around nation building in lots of countries around the world. and. In one example that is close to my heart, for example, there was a plebiscite in Italy after the war on whether or not the monarchy would be retained. And in a fairly tight, uh, in a fairly tight result, the plebiscite decided that the monarchy should be abolished. Many uh, historians believe that while the Russians didn't want a monarchy, it was actually the Americans who had their face absolutely set against the notion of constitutional monarchy made sure that the plebiscite came out in a certain way, that the king was gone. The State Department has a long ideological opposition. When it goes into countries, it offers them a, a semi-executive forum, a strong executive, a parliamentary democracy, a federated state, a unitary state, whatever. But never does it consider the idea of a constitutional monarchy. And in a country like Afghanistan and many countries around the world that are, in a sense, pre-modern, and I'm using that word in a sense in a technical way rather than a, in a kind of a, in a judgment, a kind of moral judgment of, of, of their state of development. But it may, monarchy is historically in human affairs the, the most natural form of government. And yet the Americans absolutely seem to be opposed to it. Whether I, it may not have worked, Gary, but it was certainly something we to consider. Um, uh, Zahir Shah was that the name of the, the last king of Afghanistan I think we are told and again this may not be true that he was almost one of the very few figures in Afghanistan who had the affection and the loyalty uh, across the various tribal groups across the various ethnicities and across the, ge- the geography of the country and was capable of being and that which a monarch is ultimately a symbolic unifying figure 
which creates a nation. And Afghanistan had been a functioning monarchy for over 200 years. It is part of the American foundational myth that they fought a war to get out from under the thumb of a monarchy and establish a democracy. They were not going to fight a war to establish a monarchy. The irony is, of course, that they actually what they actually ended up doing was establishing another form of monarchy, but it was an elected monarchy. And in if you read the, the a lot of the commentary around the time of the the drafting of the constitution, a lot of the the the, the thinkers in the Virginia Enlightenment believed that the most perfect form of government was in fact a constitutional monarchy. There was talk about George Washington being offered the crown, and there was certainly the sense that that monarch that you could that Washington could still have stayed in office until he got elected and re-elected and re-elected. Washington makes the choice after two terms not to stand again, which is which became then fixed as a pattern. It wasn't a legal thing, but it was a, accepted as a kind of a, a a custom, a strong custom of of governance. Until it wasn't. Until FDR broke it, and one of the, and that shocked a lot of Americans when FDR stood uh, the set, the third time and then the fourth time. And in fact, he was a perfect example of what happens that if you get a, a reasonable a president, a reasonably popular president in for a couple of terms after that, trying to shift him becomes effective, effectively difficult. So uh, there is an argument that the, in a sense that Amer what the Americans actually created was a form of constitutional monarchy where the monarch just happened to be elected. But anyway, that's a, not, not the point. But yes, as you say, they have this notion that they did, they they threw off the road the the tyranny of the of a king and now they weren't ever going to see it happen anywhere else because this was the most perfect form of government and i just wonder if at times in different places um uh, a less ideologically driven approach to this kind of thing and this assumption that democracy is something that you could throw seeds into the soil water them and suddenly a democracy will just grow up out of the ground and it'll be flourish, and everybody will look. Oh, it's lovely. We can vote. Isn't that great? Which is grand until the wrong people win the election, and we've seen that happen. One thing I have really been enjoying about the Afghan thing is all of the wonderful world leaders coming out and talking about the need for solidarity and reasonableness and all of these good things. Michael Michal Martin came out and said some. I mean, they were definitely words. There was no value. There was nothing to them. They were just said because he had to. But it's a bad time for us to be on the Security Council. Michal Martin called on the Taliban to show restraint and to uphold international law. Yeah. And I've got to say to the Taliban, some of the, the their Western-facing press stuff has been hilariously well put together. Things like talking about the need for the European powers the moral necessity to rebuild Afghanistan, talking about how they're going to protect women's rights, Michael, within the you know, con confines of Sharia law. Stuff like that, that is obviously key to a Western audience. And I have seen people, well-meaning, intelligent people, think this is a good sign. They think that this is a sign that, well, things can only go well. They have made it, as it stands, all of the schools and universities have now told the girls not to come because the Taliban says women are not to go to school, they are not to be educated. No, we'll see. Maybe maybe this will uh, maybe this will not persist, but so far there's, there's no reason why to believe what it wants. I mean, Gary, this is going to be a regime which on the face of it, and on the basis of their stated policy preferences, is going to make Iran look like a positive haven of progressive attitudes and liberalism. Afghanistan, because of the amount of money that was pumped into it, and spent on ridiculous things, absolutely nonsensical things that did not even begin to approach effective. If you were to look at the bare figures, the, for the last 20 years, the Afghan economy has done very well. Now, if you were to strip out subsidies, direct and indirect subsidies from that, maybe those figures wouldn't look quite so good. But even if there were the fact the likelihood is you're going to see an absolute crash in this economy and that's going to affect that particular group that's going to be decimated if gary if they haven't like the more prescient rats had long left afghanistan and this is the other thing i when the americans made it clear that they were leaving a lot of these people started to leave before the before the troops did 
they had they had a sense, maybe a better sense than the Americans had, of what was going to happen, what was going to happen rather quickly. They had absolutely no faith in the civic the civic structures. Now, it's, one point that's been made, I don't know if it's worth pointing out, uh, uh, Biden makes, the, 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 in what was a peculiarly cold piece of political rhetoric in his speech, you know, you listen, if these people aren't willing to fight for their country, well, why the hell should we? But as a number of people have been making the point, something like 69 or 70,000 Afghans have actually lost their lives, Afghan military and Afghan police have lost their lives in the last 20 years fighting the Taliban. And that's not an insignificant number of people to die. So it's not to say, I don't know if it's a simple thing that the Afghans are not willing to uh, defend their country against the Taliban. What does seem to have happened, and again, we're going on reports, is that uh, very senior figures in the Afghan army were just very, very substantially bribed and basically handed over cities, even when their troops were there and and actually ready and willing to to form some kind of a defense. I think the problem that you have here is that the existing government was so corrupt, so spectacularly corrupt, none of the existing structures are likely to be able to stand up without American cash. Yeah. Which means to the Taliban, it's pretty much a greenfield site, bar the equipment and the money that they're going to be able to take for themselves. And Afghanistan, in the last couple of years has not just been corrupt, but spectacularly corrupt. And now you have this problem, Michael. What if the Taliban are better at this than the previous government? What if they're just better at ruling? Because one of the main attractions of the Taliban years ago, when they were originally coming true, it was their focus on law. Yes. That they were basically said to people, we will impose order. It will be harsh. Mm -hmm. It will be to the point, but it will be fair. Yeah, and we shouldn't underestimate the number of Afghanis who are not necessarily hostile to the idea of the imposition of Sharia law on the country of Afghanistan. I don't know, Gary, did you see some of those polls that have been taken over the last 10 years or so in Afghanistan regarding what the correct uh, mode of dress should be for women? But if you believe that Afghanistan had developed into this proto-liberal haven uh, in the last 20 years, the results of this to the European eye would seem to be rather disappointing. The figures for the correct the, the correct outfit being uh, uh, burqa, I think was, it went up and down a couple of points, was in around 34-35%, and then it went from there to niqab, to chador, to the number the number that said that women wearing with uncovered heads, say, was acceptable, I think it was like 2 or 3%. I would be curious, because I have absolutely no sense, to know if there was a poll taken, how many people in Afghanistan are actually deeply hostile to the idea of rule by the Taliban, and how many are fairly phlegmatic about it from the perspective of the rule of Sharia law. There have been many surveys of this. The problem you have here is that nearly everyone who has conducted these surveys has some interest in the answer. Yes. So I've seen figures that say 50% of people support the Taliban, or 50% of people did support the Taliban. I've seen others that say, no, it's it's you know, 10, 12, 13, 15%. The problem is, you have no idea if any of those are accurate, and also you run into this second issue. It's not just the people who support the Taliban, fully. It's the people who are willing to give the Taliban a shot. Yes. So, and this is not, by the way, in any way to make a direct comparison between these two things. It's just as a point of illumination. If you look at some of the polling on Sinn Féin and the thing that people care about and don't care about with them, Mm -hmm. lots of the things related to IRA and the trouble is priced in. A lot of people don't like those things, but they're not deal breakers. Yes. Whereas 20 years ago, a lot more of them would have been deal breakers. People are willing to accept things based on the overall competency and ability of the government in power. And as that competency falls and people lose more and more trust and respect in it, you were going to be willing to accept things in other. And Afghanistan was spectacularly bad. Yes. And, you know, one of the shibboleths that we have in the West about the 
the system, the way of governance that we have, or our our our, our philosophical worldview that of Western liberalism is that the central value that we have is liberty, individual liberty and autonomy. And I think the pandemic, in a way, has been an interesting optic to look at that. I'm more and more convinced that actually for most people, outside of people who are excessively interested in politics, like maybe we are, or outside of the academy, outside of the academy, that for most people, safety in its broadest sense is actually a more cherished value, a sense of safety, personal safety, familial safety and security is what they value more than any sort of abstract idea of liberty. And if you live in Afghanistan and Afghanistan, oh God, for the last two generations, the, the state it's been in, the kind of governance it's had, if the Taliban come in and they're offering stability and safety and a sense of safety that, okay, these are the rules and the rules may be not going to be nice, but if you, if they are predictable and they are clear, and if you stay within these, every, you will live in a safe environment that might be very attractive to people i suppose the question really that i want I'm, I'm asking is not so much it's not so much important how many people support the taliban now or putatively might support the Taliban. question would be in a year's time or in two years time how many people will support the taliban because that will obviously that will tell us more an awful lot more about what kind of nation afghan is going to become and you never know we also don't listen the taliban is made of human beings, Gary, and human beings are rarely fixed adamantine creatures. They change, they evolve. The context in which they find themselves may, may mean that they have to make decisions. They may turn out to be more pragmatic and more practical in their approach to things than ideological. Or they may turn out to be like ISIS were in the Islamic State and be utterly driven by an absolutely singular worldview and they're not willing to change and that will produce a different outcome. I think your, your point on safety, if you include within that the need for a basic level of order and protection from chaos particularly, because chaos is just very tiring. And frightening. I mean, terrifying for people living in real chaos. Yeah, I mean, you look at Afghanistan in the 90s. And you have the warlords. You had what? You had you have six different Mujahideen armies fighting it out for years. And you know, after something like that, Taliban start looking pretty good. I, I, I was I was talking to somebody recently about the the, the state, the current state of the situation in uh, in the Congo, right? And it just struck me in the context of the, what we're talking about in Afghanistan. There are we they genuinely don't know how many micro wars happening in and around the Congo at the moment. How many armies or bits of armies or unofficial bits of armies are active there. But for the people living there, people are living in in this dreadful state of, of ultimate chaos. And it just struck me, if somebody like the Taliban, an African version of the Taliban, and not necessarily a religious group, maybe like a proto-fascist group, was just arrive and enforce and say, okay, we are going to bring you Peace and security. I can imagine that if you were in the Congo, you'd say, yes, please. If you think they have the capability to actually deliver on it, yeah. Yeah, if they're actually committed. And even if they were going to bring in a set of rules that you were going to go, ooh, that's going to be tough. But you're also confident that if you stayed within those rules, that you would be safe and you would have protection from the nightmarish chaos that had preceded it. I think that a lot of people would say, okay, yeah, let's give this a try. So who I think that there there has to be an element, a perfectly under human, understandable sense that maybe this is because in, in a, when you a state as corrupt as the former Afghan regime seems to have been, there's a lot of money sloshing around. But we know that that money will tend to stick to a fairly narrow band of people, and we know that when you have a situation where there's a lot of money going around, and you see lar- you see that that money which is supposed to be coming to you, but is sticking to these people, that creates a sense of alienation and resentment, which is incredibly corrosive for a nation. So the Taliban can protect you and they'll hurt those you think should be hurt. And you know, there may be some collateral damage, like there's some stuff you don't agree with regarding you know, women or stuff like that, but best of a bad option. 
Indeed, that's the nature of humanity, isn't it, very often? Whatever is the best from the bad options. I think the problem, one of the problems here, for the West anyway, is that people, particularly people who don't have a terrible interest in history, would look at a group like the Taliban, would look at some of what the Taliban believes and what it has done, and assume it could never be the case where they are the best option available to you. Yeah, yeah. And in many parts of the world... And across many, many years, people have found that groups like the Taliban or like whatever warlord is there who says that they can actually bring whatever it is back together, whether it's a village or a country or a region or a continent, oftentimes the best option going for you. Not a good option, but the best option. I think on that uplifting note, Michael, we will be back on Friday. Jolly good. Have a good one. All the best. <laughs>